Welcome to Overdue Classics, the podcast for all the books you've been meaning to read. I'm Brandon LeBlanc, and I am joined once again with our special guests, Brian Phillips and Andrea Lipinski, to wrap up our discussions on the Oristea. How are you guys doing today? Great. Doing well. Okay. So we ran out of time on Agamemnon. We got caught mm. back up on, on Libation Bearers. And uh, I think we, we covered humanities pretty pretty cleanly uh, last week, but there's always questions lingering for us, for the audience. Um, and so that's what we're here for, to wrap up on some of those questions. Uh, and as I was thinking about that, before we jump into some other questions, um, I was reminded that this was the first time read for me and for Andrea. Um, but Brian has taught this a few times and and has several a couple of times mentioned on here um, things he gets back from his students often or likes, likes to ask them. So I thought we'd start off with, uh, for all you teachers out there, what Brian likes to ask his students as they kind of come to the end of the Oristea. And Andrea and I will do our best to impersonate teenagers uh, for a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I've taught it several times. I, I've never said that I taught it well. Um, but um, I'll Fair enough. be happy to, <laughs> I'll be happy to throw out questions. I think these, uh, these three plays sort of bring with them pretty obvious questions. And that's always nice as a, as a teacher, when you can see that the, the real issues are sort of right there in front of you. Um, there's, um, and so there are a lot of good, very open-ended things that, that you can pose to students you know to a, a class or in a homeschooling setting even if it's one-on-one -on -one. but the first the first question though comes from you do have to do a bit of digging with this as far as the background goes like we talked about in the episode on Agamemnon uh, about the the genealogy the family curse all of that that um, I think is very important and the reason it's important is um, because uh, the original audience would have would have pretty well understood a lot of those stories. And so for us to have a good understanding of the trilogy that we need to have some understanding of that too. But with all of that in mind, one of the big questions that I always like asking students about, uh, particularly about the first play is, um, is Clytemnestra a sympathetic character? Because that really seems to be one of the big struggles in the first play. And so because of that, I mean, when you see the chorus, the the men of the city are struggling with that. They don't know what to do with Clytemnestra. That begs us to ask, you know, um, then what should we think of her? Um, so that would be one of the first big questions that I that I'm fond of asking students. And so now. Um, I get to sit back and watch you two wrestle with it. But, um, <laughs> so well, yeah, it's Clytemnestra, a sympathetic character. Andrew came down strong on the side of matricide um, in previous episodes. So that's right. You heard it here, guys. Yeah. I'm, cur I'm curious if she has any any uh, sympathy for Clytemnestra. Okay, so I've been thinking about her. So with with that in mind, uh, with her in mind, I think I have to talk for a little bit to figure out if she's a sympathetic character or not. Okay. Um, and so maybe together I can figure it out um, with y'all. So she proclaims that her deeds are her own, right? The blood is all on her hands. Right. Uh, it That's has nothing point. to do with her boyfriend, her husband's cousin, you know, um, this is her. So she owns it. Um, 
And why does she do it? I've been thinking about that. And I would say she's got a few motives. Um, it's a revenge for her daughter, right? To right that wrong in some manner, if that's what, if killing yeah. the, the killer can actually right the wrong. That's another question, but that's her motive. Um, there's a resentment uh, against Agamemnon for her his presumptuousness in acting that way and making that choice, um, as well as for his sexual infidelity in showing up with another woman. So to me, those are her two strongest motives. As I did some research, others told me that one of her motives is her love for Aegisthus. I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that. Yeah. Um, it's I hard to tell when that started. Basically, right. yeah. When did that relationship start? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, I, I don't. I feel like Esclus. I do. I say his name right. Es I didn't. Yeah, Esclus. Esclus. He's not. He's not listening. It's fine. <laughs> okay, good. That <laughs> um, he does not portray Aegisthus as helping her mm. in a way that I've heard the stories told. You know, when we all chit chat about Homer, we chit chat about, you know, like, it seems to me like these two did it together, wove the web that caught Agamemnon. But when I read it, she does it. Hmm. So I, so in, in those ways, um, I guess I, I wonder at a time when is she, am I sympathetic toward her? What was she post, supposed to do? Um with a husband who had a blatant disregard for their children <clears throat> and her. So let me, let me throw in, this is also one of my favorite things to do as a teacher yeah. is to throw in okay. a question to make it more complicated just when you think you're making progress. Um, so Orestes was told to avenge the death of his father, yeah. right? Because, um, you know, Clytemnestra had shed, should uh, his mother's blood killed him and and so it was his responsibility to avenge his father because it was his family blood what one question that i keep coming back to and that we didn't talk about in the previous episodes was whether clytemnestra in a way was obeying apollo's law by killing agamemnon mm -hmm. um, she was avenging, familial blood. avenging the blood of her daughter mm -hmm. um yeah and and that's one reason why she had to do it and not Aegisthus, because Aegisthus, if he killed Agamemnon, mm. would be shedding family blood as well. Um, Interesting. So, yeah. Um, so just to kind of throw a, another question in there, do we think that Clytemnestra was actually acting somewhat righteously by avenging the blood of her daughter? That's interesting because because that really drives the point home to, in the end then with Orestes being the one who's caught in between, right? Because all of the others uh, are, I guess, uh, fulfilling their, what the, what the Furies would have them do, right? Which would be to avenge family blood. Um, and then he's stuck with this impossible decision where they're both family blood and to avenge the one family blood, he's got to kill another family blood, but someone of family blood. And so, if she's acting, hmm, wow. Oh, and, and the Furies seem to give her that uh, cover a little, or that, not so much cover, but they they don't they don't care that she killed Agamemnon because it's not familial, right? It's not it's not a bloodline. Uh, it is familial, I guess. It's not a bloodline. Mm -hmm. um, 
So it's certainly, I think, open to that interpretation that she is fulfilling what the Furies require, but then Apollo comes along and it's not, it's, it's an affront to him in some sense. So, and, and in that way, these stories would really be setting up and maybe they are, maybe he's, maybe he's reflecting a, kind of an Athenian understanding. Cause we get that, that, that that's the first kind of Athenian trial that happens at the end when people are deciding that what the standard is, that there is something that supersedes the blood, the blood responsibility. Um, although the, the, the way it's worked out is strange, like the way it's justified is strange as we just talked about. So, well, and, and the further back you go, the more complicated it gets, like that's not even the only twist that you could throw into this kind of conversation right. is that why did Agamemnon sacrifice if his daughter Iphigenia? Because Artemis told him to, right? So now you've got Agamemnon obeying one god mm-hmm. while um, this would then possibly require Clytemnestra to obey a different god to avenge it which then required Orestes to, to avenge the murder of Agamemnon while simultaneously breaking the law of the Furies. So Clytemnestra is not the only one weaving webs here. I guess in, in a sense, you could say that when you back up, um, the real Black Widow in all this was just the Greek gods and goddesses. They is were the ones was- weaving the web. Yeah. So then where is free will and blame responsibility within this Greek society? And I think that's one of the questions Esiklis is putting before us in these three plays. Exactly. Exactly. Which is why we have to ask these questions, right? Mm-hmm. And the Greek playwrights were sometimes pretty critical of the Greek pantheon, which is why a lot of the playwrights got in trouble. Um, the philosophers, too. Um, yeah. I, I- I think I can muster some sympathy for how she feels when Agamemnon shows up, for sure. We talked, I mean, we joked about that even. He shows up after killing their daughter with another woman in tow. Like, this is not a good, this is not a good look. And I don't think any of us found Agamemnon to be completely, you know, a faultless person uh, throughout any of the. Well, he's stories. Brian's favorite. Brian's Brian favorite. That's right. Yeah, that's one word. <laughs> when when Brian resilient, he's just like, come on, Agamemnon. Um, yeah, that's yeah, really pulling for him. Yeah. Actually, I just wanted him to walk on the carpet. Just go, <laughs> just go in the palace already. I know where this Going. is headed. No, I'm just <laughs> might be a little strong, but um yeah, but, the, yeah the the her oh man. Like what's There's, her what's her other recourse? Like what's you know what I mean? Yeah. What's what's her other recourse? In the, does she have any other recourse in this in this structure? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. Like I, don't, I mean, maybe I just don't know the politics of, of it enough. But um, I'm not sure she has much other recourse. It's like there's there's part of me. There's a couple of things that come to mind with this. Part of me thinks, um, given the way Agamemnon is. And, you know, the record that we have of him in the Iliad and then his behavior in the first part of this play, um, of the first part of the play, Agamemnon, um, it's kind of difficult not to have some sympathy for Clytemnestra. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, 
as you said, you know, she's, she's in a situation that is difficult to imagine. You know, it's hard to conceive of, of how any of us would feel or respond in that situation. There's also a sense where when you read it and you see, even though I guess this didn't help in the actual murder of Agamemnon, he was very clearly waiting in the wings, you know, just waiting for the moment to kind of swoop in. And he even declares at the end of the first play that, um, you know, the, the powers his then, you know. Um, and so it's not, he wasn't innocent in this either. So it's like when you read it and you see how Callus, uh, both Aegisthus and Clytemnestra were, on one hand, you go, I can understand where you, I mean, she's had a decade of resentment, a decade of bitterness building to this moment, right? The whole Trojan War took place before he came back. Um, but then, you know, her response to the chorus, um, the fact that she didn't appeal to them that we know of at, mm -hmm. at any point when Agamemnon was gone. Um, you know, so it's, it's hard to imagine like what other recourse she had, but we also don't have any indication that she attempted any other recourse either. Right. So it's not as if this is a woman, it would be hard to say, I should, let me put it that way. It would be hard to say she did everything she could to avoid this. Right. You know, instead, what we have is her standing in front of the men of the city with a bloody dagger going, this is the masterpiece of justice, you know? Um, and so that well, it's kind of both. Okay. I'm going to counter that because you okay. said, well, what if um, she is just acting on behalf of what the Furies would want anyway, by writing the wrong of the family blood that Agamemnon took. But if that's the case, then the Furies should have been hunting, hunting him for the last 10 years. And we don't see that anywhere. Like they hunted or Orestes right. immediately. Yeah. And, and they didn't do that to Agamemnon. So there's not yeah. a God acting on her behalf. Right. Uh, right. A saying that this was wrong. There's, does that, so I. I yeah. I don't I remember some would probably contend that too, that, that maybe the law of the Furies and the law of Apollo didn't apply in this mm -hmm. situation because, um, you know, I've, I've even read that some have argued that most likely it's that Apollo's law really just applied to the father, the patriarch of the family line. Um, mm -hmm. And if that's the case, then now we're kind of back to, well, then Clytemnestra is more of a sympathetic character than I thought, because what, what is she going to do? She has no one in her corner, you know? Right. And I can't remember, at the there's no, there's no appeal of her from her to to the Furies or some other god for justice is there in the in the very beginning? I recall. Like she doesn't yeah. ask them to. She doesn't ask them to give because that's what we have with the with the rest is we have him going to Apollo right asking for him to. Right. His so hands. that yeah. lends itself towards she's kind of taking things into her own hands. Yeah, um, yeah. but I also not sure too. I'm sorry, Brandon. It, it, just to kind of um, echo that, it, it's notable too that at the beginning of the the first play. Um, the sacrificial fires are notably not lit. Like the oh, altars right. aren't lit. You know, right. The, that was a, a big kind of detail at the beginning. So. Right. And it's listed as being not lit for their safe return, basically. All right. Uh, are spoken of that way. But it's also, they're, they're not lit for anything. They're not lit for beseeching justice on them either. 
Um, and what I what I'm not sure is whether whether uh, Aeschylus writes this, you know, after Homer, and he's and he's assuming the knowledge of of the of the Odyssey, so he doesn't have to give us the detail of Augustus complicity because com, uh, that's covered in by Homer, right? In, when when Odysseus is in, in the afterworld, they're they're talked about as being conspiring against Agamemnon, right? So is he just assuming that, acknowledging that, and therefore doesn't isn't explicit with it? About how much it was a partnership and focuses on Clytemnestra because that's whose Orestes is going to be charged with a blood, you know, charged with a blood crime against. Or is it, or is he trying to paint her as more sympathetic and trying to let, I guess, who's off the hook a little bit or why, you know, but because uh, I think those are the two ways with his audience, either his audience, he's assuming his audience that already agrees with what Homer had to say about them in the, in the Odyssey, um, or he's, shifting it a little bit which we do get from some people right we get yeah or it could even be that he's he's making the the point of keeping i guess this sort of off stage a bit um because the point is really dealing with the the dilemma the conflicting laws right and so the audience would have known that i guess this really can't be involved in this part of it Mm -hmm. Um, so maybe that was that could be part of it as well it's a good opening question for students brian it's a tough one thanks yeah, <laughs> and I, I mean, I, that doesn't mean I necessarily know the answers either. But that's what makes it a good question. Well, because there's not very many likable characters in these stories. Like it's not many. I mean, it's certainly not off the cuff. Like even Orestes, you're kind of like, oh, he killed his own mom. You know what I mean? Like for a modern for modern audience, that's tough to swallow. Except so, for Andrea, she was except, all for, except for Andrea. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. This um, isn't the place where you go to find like who should I name my children after. Yeah, no. right. Yeah, 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 right. There's no, there's no Antigone in these stories. Like there was in the Oedipus yeah. cycle. Like I can go with Antigone. She's pretty solid. Yes. Um, no. And so, so do you have pity for like, you could almost pick any character and like, it, is there any kind of pity for this person? Uh, is a great yeah. question. Yeah. Is a great question. So yeah, you, you could easily apply that kind of like we did to Agamemnon to Orestes. Right. To, yeah. Okay. But I'm thinking about Cassandra. Because um, she states in my translation, there is no God of healing in this story. And so, right, when you pointed out here, Brian, so well, that the God's laws are pitted against one another. And man, men, women, people are acting, in di- you know, differently to this law, to that law, to this law, obeying different gods. And now what? And there is not a God that heals in this story. Yeah, and that's the the play that I mentioned somewhere along the way. One episode's it's very similar, involving um, Dionysius um, in the Buckeye. It's the same way. Um, it really is um, same. There's no there's no god that can sacrifice himself for man. Um, and but it's it, it's good that you brought up Cassandra because I think if there is a sympathetic character that's obvious to us in these plays, it's it's her. Mm-hmm. Um, She's the one that comes to my mind when we're talking, Um, right? I mean, she spoke truth over and over. Um, She saw truth over and over and and shared and wasn't heard. Yeah. And and once again, we have in her whole story, the background of her story is that she always spoke the truth. She always offered Mm -hmm. true prophecy and she wasn't believed, but it was because of a curse from one of the other gods. Right. Um, And so... It reminds me a lot of in um, 
Let's see. Um, oh goodness, I'm having a brain lapse here. Uh, I don't remember exactly where it was where the shield of Achilles is described. Like what book? Mm-hmm. Was it? Um, oh, do you get? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you well, yeah, which, I mean, book oh, which book? Oh, which book? Yeah. Okay. I don't recall. Book yeah, nine the, the two cities yeah. are portrayed mm-hmm. on the shield. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's oh, interesting right, yeah. that, that the shield where their wedding's taking place and their celebration and the harvest is being brought in and the city seems at peace and it's productive is the one where the gods are not present. Um, hmm. And so uh, it kind of makes you wonder um, <laughs> was Homer kind of getting at the same thing that some of the playwrights were getting at? But, right. Really, at, at when you pull the veil back from the the Greco-Roman world, uh, really, what you find is that um, much of the evil that was perpetrated was was from the gods, um, and you know, so that's a that's a pretty startling revelation when you have um, when you see that portrayed so so plainly. Yeah, that's um, I mean, that and that's the accusation that that. Socrates gives too, right? That's part of his reason, his issue with Homer is that he is that he does uh, talk ill of the gods as the impious. But a uh, lots of people I know have, especially when they get to even probably maybe even more so in the Aeneid than in the Iliad and the Odyssey, that struggle to to feel like the people really have their own agency and it's not so much driven by the gods. But um, that can be a real challenge for us reading back into some of these texts and trying to kind of suss that out like where's where's man's responsibility and where are they do they not have agency as far as the Greeks and Romans were concerned um okay so then with that in mind does Clytemnestra have agency here because I think she does she's not told by a god to kill Agamemnon there's not a law necessarily that tells her to do it either though you wondered Brian about one but I I don't I don't think so because the Furies didn't go after Ag yeah, it's more that the, I think in this case it's more what they put in motion, right? By by requiring her daughter to be sacrificed, one god kind of sits this whole thing in motion, um, and then and there's back and forth after that. Um, okay. And like Brian said, you know, uh, um, Cassandra is under a curse from one of the gods, and yeah. and uh, I, yeah, she she's definitely the most sympathetic character, and I, I kind of it's kind of. It almost feels like Aeschylus kind of um, kind of rounds her story out, caps it off. Uh, you know, where we we're kind of left with it in the end of of Homer's epics, we don't really kind of see her all the way through, and so it's kind of he kind of Aeschylus kind of gives her like a little swan song here to some extent. Um, and again, yeah, like, and like we said, she's really the most sympathetic character in the in the whole story. So, Andrea, I believe you had a question coming in that you wanted to pose. To the, oh, I like Brian's questions. <laughs> well, we can share. Share. I, I mean, mine was to so off. I I don't know if this is a good question for Greek plays. So that I you know help me out. Um, but I was trying to think about the three plays. They're put together for a reason to help us see each of them better. Right? They're not laid side by side for nothing. And so, who's the main character in each one, and what are we to see in them? Which Brian, you took us there in one in some ways right um but not anyway but that, that's my question we'll see where you go and where my head goes that's a good question um because it 
it's when it seems like it should be easy, but but then when you back up and say, well, what is the playwright trying to get us to to learn from that? Um, mm -hmm. I would think that the main the main character in the first play is Clytemnestra. Oh, it's named Agamemnon. Right, right. Mm -hmm. um, and the second play would be Orestes. Mm -hmm. And this is one that I, I think maybe the hardest one for me in the, the final play, I would say maybe Athena. Mm -hmm. I think it I think it culminates with her. Um, so then I have two questions. One, am I right? And then two, what does that mean? <laughs> well, it's, Can't right or not? Can't help you. <laughs> yeah, it is really interesting. Then with the with the naming, right? Because um, the second one is named Libation Bearers, which is like such a strange name because they're in like that first scene for like a hot second, and that's the name of the play. When it when the seems like the third the name for the third play really applies better to the second play. Um, I think you're right about Athena, though. Um, and maybe even more than that, like I think Athena as a as a maybe I'm maybe it's just because I'm comparing the two so much, but it seems to get the same thing at the end of um, the Oedipus cycle is kind of this. It's it's a statement about there's a statement made about Athens to some extent, and which is where these plays are being written and taking place. So it's it's good to remember I think that in both these cases, it's members of the Athens city-state who are writing these plays. So while they're Greek, they're not, you know, they're not really covering a lot, like, you know, they're not there to praise the Spart to praise Sparta or Crete or so. They really are kind of um kind of both end in kind of explaining a little bit about how, how Athens is what it is and who it's it's special um nature to some extent. And in this case, it's kind of a democratic form of of handling the law right um uh the other one i think was a, there was a link to some to the to actually the wisdom and the things to go along with uh oedipus's body um and so that's what i but in that because but because of that it, it brings athena front and center for that third play as its establishment of a, of a seat of wisdom it's her it already was her seat but the seat of wisdom that's kind of almost like she disperses it to the peoples. Like it goes from being hers to being something she kind of gives out to the people to, to meet, to meet out on her behalf in the city. So. Well, and the, the Athenian playwrights were always willing to point out in their, in their plays, how much better Athens was than everywhere else. You know, after all to get to, for resolution of this, of course they had to come to Athens. Um, look, Look what these poor saps did in Argos without, you know, without us. They had to come to Athens. And the Athenians are so wise that even Athena herself goes, I'm going to let you guys decide. Right, so, right, yeah. Um, mm. Yes, so they're not not exactly humble about it. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, so this, in a way, there's a little bit of that maybe uh, under the surface of kind of a look at these poor country bumpkins, you know, trying to figure yeah. out what to do. You know, of course, it culminates in them coming to Athens. Um, but I think that, you know, as we talked about with the, with the family curse, um, there's multi-generational that it is, 
um, it's significant that um, Athena ends up being kind of the final word. Um, the wisdom, true wisdom, was the only thing that really could could fix this and could undo all that. Um, it, as far as um, the titles go, uh, it, it's interesting that if you look at the the titles, mm -hmm. uh, my theory is that. It, each one of them in a different way was a form of sacrifice. You had Agamemnon, who was the, wow. the name bearers. The first play bears his name. Um, he was sacrificed, at least in her mind, by Clytemnestra mm -hmm. um, to appease not the gods, but at least her wrath, right? Mm -hmm. And then the second play, the libation bearers were there mm -hmm. in an attempt to appease right. the gods, um, even though uh, Clytemnestra couldn't do it herself you know the, um, mm -hmm. she tried in the first play she couldn't in the second play so the yeah. libation bearers go to do it for her mm -hmm. interestingly enough what we find out is that the libation bearers were not the only libation bearers right Orestes becomes the true libation bearer later um, and it's it's not by drink offering but by actually having to sacrifice his mom's blood to appease the god um and then finally, um, with the Eumenides, the final play, Orestes offers to sacrifice mm -hmm. himself right. to appease the gods. Um, but then the Furies themselves end up being the sacrifice in a way. And they're mm -hmm. made into the graces. Um, and Athena and Apollo are satisfied. The Furies are satisfied. Mm -hmm. And so if you take that kind of theme of sacrifice and justice through the whole trilogy, I think that the names of the plays make more sense, even though really uh, you could argue that none of the plays are actually named for the main character, but they are named for the theme of the whole trilogy, if that makes sense. Um, that's my theory. I mean, I, I could be wrong. I've never been able to talk to Aeschylus about it and find out if that's what he had in mind. But Well, maybe he'll hear this podcast and schedule an appointment with you afterwards. Let's he's pretty so. he's pretty standoffish. He's kind of mm -hmm. one of those reclusive writers. Yeah, yeah. Typical artist. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. I appreciate you sharing that. Um because I've I've sat with the first two, but when I looked at the third, oh, I couldn't I couldn't see it being Athena. I didn't place it on a god as the primary mm -hmm. character. And yeah. Um, and while Cassandra says in the first play that no god of healing is in the story. Athena comes the closest to be bringing peace in that land with those people, um, you know, by offering the Furies a place to live there um, in a way that they will be honored. That that's the and when you say that you know they offer a sacrifice of the blood that they want, they don't receive, and that's the, the sacrifice. Yeah. Um, but it's her guidance um, that brings them there with the local people. Yeah, they sacrifice their right, right? They, they have yeah. this ancient right to this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Athena even acknowledges that in casting the the deciding vote. She, I mean, in, during the trial, Athena acknowledges that the Furies were not asking for something that they did not have the right to. Mm-hmm. 
And that's why, like, one of the things that I always come back to in teaching this is, did Orestes do the right thing? And when you, and that's kind of the central question um, in every sense of the word, right there in the middle play. And then it's worked out throughout the the remainder of of the trilogy. But um, we talked about a, a little bit about how you have the themes that as Christians stand out to us, like the, the, the promised child. Um, and, and, and I think one other one that we need to give, mm. maybe pay attention to in teaching this and reading it is that you had Orestes who is the promised child. And yet, so you have that similarity with, with the Christian gospel running through part of this, but then it stops short, right? He, seems willing he seems willing to offer yeah but he but he can't be and he's not um and you see that a lot um in the greek plays too which i find fascinating um and i know it's always kind of kind of troubled me and and people students will ask a lot of times like what does that um, what does that mean what should we think of those parallels and I always encourage him to look for the difference. But I think, if I remember correctly, it was in Mere Christianity that C.S. Lewis talks about this, how um, even that God has has put into the hearts and minds of of man, even, even the pagans, um, what he called dreams for something like this, dreams for uh, a savior. Um, and he even mentioned the Greek playwrights as an example of that, that they come so, so close and you can see the desire for it, the longing for it is there, but he referred to it as God giving them dreams, um, where they would actually long for it. And mm-hmm. I think that's, I think that's pretty fascinating is that, um, Orestes could not, could not die for, uh, and, and fix anything, you know, he could not be any kind of perfect or lasting sacrifice. So even if ultimately, if you think about it, even if he had been sacrificed for killing Clytemnestra, um, the Furies would have continued, right? They would have mm-hmm. gone on to the next and and the law of Apollo would have stood and they would go on to the next. So nothing would have been resolved um, in, in the ultimate sense. Um, so it's interesting just to, I think to think through those those different issues and parallels, but yeah, I did have one other question that I always like asking students if you may throw this out here. One that we haven't talked about. We did talk a little bit about whether Orestes did the right thing in mm-hmm. other episodes, but I always like asking students whether Athena made the right decision because mm-hmm. that was a little more disarming. The thought okay, question the goddess, the goddess might, of wisdom might have been wrong. Yeah, was the goddess of wisdom wise? Hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, she's also the goddess of war, right? So, uh, maybe, maybe per, perchance, uh, a Renaissance uh, goddess, yeah. yeah, her eyes were looking more towards that, that direction. I don't know. Um, so, this is a strange, it's an interesting question for me because I think I told you like before listening, before reading it. I knew the general story, but I didn't know, like, I, I th- either I had heard it wrong or assumed what the, right. what the justification was, you know? So 
I think I was comfortable with the idea that um, Orestes had to avenge his father's death because A, it's his father. B, he's the rightful king. He was the rightful king, so he's he's usurped. Um, you know, a lot of these a lot a lot of these things we see obviously borrowed and played out in Hamlet later by another playwright. Um, but the justification that that piety is only is only owed the father and that that only the father is the parent essentially <laughs> um and that he backs that up with well you know athena you don't have a mom you popped right out of this is it like that's the justification that seemed very strange and a little flimsy to me as far as like i think there's a good argument a good case to be made for why he, it, it was right for him to do what he did but that's not it like that was a very strange argument to be made and for the whole thing to hinge on um especially it to be made by apollo right yeah yeah it was yeah, really they, that was harder for me to swallow than anything else probably yeah apollo are, i've had middle school students that that gave better arguments i feel like right. so i'm i'm with you on that one brandon I right that was very right. odd paula needs a little bit more lesson a few more lessons in rhetoric apparently um it's uh yeah like i felt like she made the right choice but not for the right evidence <laughs> if that if that make, maybe that maybe that's the way i would answer that question which is odd to me which seems like a bad a bad if you're trying to teach the athenians how to like do justice like that's a really bad case study to set them off on well that's why we don't read these plays in the apprenticeship <laughs> no no negative examples it's just what a terrible response. Because <laughs> <laughs> we do read the ones, the the, the speeches in Julius Caesar. Those are up for debate a little bit. Right. Some are, some of them are far better than others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, My head started comparing this one, this trilogy, to the Count of Monte Cristo. Yeah. Interesting. It's been a while. Yeah, you're you're going to have to unpack that one a little bit what what do you mean <laughs> well um the the purse so it, it could be a loose tie it could be loose um sure sure <laughs> but the pursuit of justice that i think that is part of the human condition um and so what what law are we to follow and answer to because when the the count before he becomes the count is in prison for eight years, meets the father, the abbot, um, the abbot tells him, you know, your heart is not ready to be released from here because he's so angry and spiteful. But then he spends, I don't know, what, what six six more years in prison with him um, before they escape. Uh, one escapes with his life, one escapes without his life, but, you know, they both out. And so then the rest of the play, as he's enacting, unfolding, it's not a play, the rest of the story, the novel, he's unfolding his plans. Um, is it revenge that's acting or justice that's acting? And so that's what I, you know, when we come to that third one, when Athena is saying what what acted here, um, in a way, was, was Orestes acting for revenge or, you know, against the right order or for justice? I feel like that's a similar question at the end, but maybe I'm a too far stretch. 
Uh, it doesn't sound like it to me. That sounds sounds pretty spot on. Um, and I think that and this is this is one of the reasons we read these books, right? We because they they continue uh, making us ask questions that that we should be asking, um, and ones that don't have a, a simple answer. Um, right. And I do think that that's an important distinction that you made, though, that, that we could probably apply to the difference between what Cardemnestra does and what Orestes does is the difference between revenge and justice. Because mm-hmm. um, I don't think we have any indication that Orestes wanted to do what he did. Right. Um, and, uh, on some level, obviously, he did. You know, because we he chose it. In, in an act of the will, right? We, we do what we want. Right. Right. For whatever right. reason it's. Um, but he was in a genuine dilemma. He had to choose between two things, both of which were extremely undesirable, to put it mildly. Um, and and so I don't think that we look at it. It would be fair to look at um, Orestes as um, you know, being callous in any way, shape or form. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and the, the lead up to him making that decision was particularly, you know, heartbreaking you know his conversation with his mom right yeah but you're right so to lay that beside Clytemnestra we don't see like I I like the words you used today Brian you said did she do everything she could do to right this wrong before she chose to murder him right everything else did she use everything else at her disposal and we don't see any evidence of that I agree with you and, you know, and when Orestes has the decision he has to make, there are but two choices to walk away from this and let my mom and her boyfriend rule my kingdom um, or to kill her. So. Yeah, that's another important thing. I, I mentioned that Agamemnon was the rightful king who was usurped. Um, but even once he dies, that throne should go to should go to Orestes. Right. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, he's he is you sort of there's there's a there's a level of justice for himself, uh, and he's been in, he's in exile basically. So, um, yeah, all the more reason that those all that that none of those things being brought up are are is interesting in the when it comes to the trial in the third. Now, I was like, in Psalm what ninety six this morning. And it talks in there, you know, and I didn't, it's just where I happen to be next, right? I just read the next psalm um, about how God will come and he will right the wrongs. He will avenge. And it's not us. And, And that deep desire we have for justice is ever present. And when you say that, you know, these stories, these dreams created a longing for it, for the sacrifice to come, to heal the land. Yeah, and to have to have no hope of that mm-hmm. under the Greek gods, you know, and and particularly in Clytemnestra's case, and I think to his credit, you know, it's sad, but to his credit, Orestes was in the same situation. You know, he he wasn't sure that he had any hope of resolution. Um, yeah. for this either um yeah it's um, a very it's understandable why why these plays have such kind of a a pull and a shroud of 
of darkness, you know, at the beginning, and then even at the end, um, it's sort of, there aren't too many Greek uh, plays that end, you think, with the equivalent of they lived happily ever after. Um, and even this one doesn't. I mean, because think of how many terrible things have happened over the course of that that trilogy. You know, there's some resolution, but that's it's a resolution that was extremely costly. Um, you know, so mm -hmm. in, in that sense, it's still... Um, that kind of brings me to one other question that I like asking students more for practice for them. And that is, is this trilogy a tragedy or a comedy hmm. in the classical sense? Yeah. Oh, I need help unpacking that one. I've been told it's a tragedy, but now you're asking me to actually think about it. Um, that's, there's a difference there. And so if I think about Shakespeare, a tragedy, everybody's dead on the stage at the end. Right. What's the classical sense of a tragedy? Um, well, typically a, a tragedy, and we, we certainly see it in the Oedipus cycle, but the, um, you know, that was, that's not a tough one. But the, um, in the end, you know, the, the arc of a tragedy is where, you know, man starts off at a certain point and then there's a fall. Mm -hmm. um, and typically that fall, even though there might be lessons learned, but there's not really full resolution from it. Mm -hmm. um, that's a, a tragedy. Whereas the comedy, there's um, there's a fall, but yeah. then there's a rise back to, uh, at the end, a rise back to either the same point or a higher point. Um, I suppose I know, uh, Peter Lightheart talks about um, talks about that and he, he says that essentially um, the story that God is telling um, is the only one that is a deep comedy where um, the end is far higher, infinitely higher than the beginning or the fall ever could be. Um, but but a comedy, of course, you know, in Shakespeare, you mentioned the tragedies, the stage is full of dead bodies. In, yeah. in the in the comedies, there's a wedding. Right. Um, yeah. Um, and with Shakespeare, you just better hope that your name is not on the play. Because uh, if the play's named <laughs> after you, you're dead. Right. Um, so, but in in classical comedy, yeah. there's that sense of the rise back. Um, so here, this is this is why I think it's a it's an interesting question for here. You had yeah. You start off at a certain point where the king is gone. Um, the queen has been wronged. Um, then the king returns. Any other story, that is a high point, right? This is the, this is the moment everyone's been waiting for. Right. But then you have this fall. Um, and you could say that like, it started off at a pretty low point anyway, and then got lower, far lower. So in that sense, it's a tragedy. But comedies do the same thing. <laughs> You know, so really, I guess the question for this is where do they end up and would it be considered? Is there resolution to everything? Is there any is this, rising at all yeah, from, the, yeah. from the hollow? Hmm. And that's that's the tough question is that most most people do refer to this as a as a uh, tragedy. Right. Um, but in a sense, you have 
Orestes is freed. Yeah. His his kingdom should be restored. Um the family curse should be broken now. Mm-hmm. So as strange as it is, yeah. you have a play where the the king dies, uh the queen dies, the main arguably the main character had to kill his mom, um, run for his life, is put on trial. But then I think you could argue it's a comedy because by the end, the house of Atreus, at least, is in a far better place than it was at the beginning. And the Furies pronounce blessings. Right. That's huge. Yeah. I think we kind of alluded to this. Anyway, it it almost feels like a wedding at the end. Right. The way that's worded. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think. You know, we've gotten so used to that shorthand of there's a wedding or everybody's dead like that like with Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little less clean with the histories than it is with the comedies and the tragedies. But uh, but um, my book says right here, Greek tragedies. I know. I know. Like that, I, I, like I said, when I started, when I answered your question, I said I've been told yeah. it's a tragedy. So I just accepted it. Right. Well, that settles it. I didn't know it was on the cover. Yeah. Never mind. Terrible some, question. Some, some publisher. <laughs> Who's to, who are we to argue with a publisher's cover? Um, exactly. But the, and yes, the, we will. <laughs> but then, like my, my understanding of what you know with what a tragedy is, kind of across genres, is it's an un, it, there's an unraveling, right? That 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 um, with, with a tragedy, someone makes a, a a decision that's a bad decision, or whatever. It makes a decision that begins. And once they've made that decision, there's no going, like, they can't fix it. That the, the unraveling starts to happen, and that's why it's tragic, right? They make a mistake, and it's un, it's unfixable. Mm-hmm. Whereas, the like Brian was pointing out, with the comedy, you can make the mistake. You can fall into error. You can fall into darkness. But there's a, there's a redemption to the story, some kind of restoration. And that was actually one of the questions that was on my list was that, but it was kind of two versions of it, but you know, what is, what do we get from Aeschylus as the Greek view of restoration or the Greek, or the words the cycle tells about the Greek view of justice. Mm-hmm. And I think, I, I, Brian, listening to you talk, I almost want to parse it even more than almost anybody would, because it, we tend to look at this as a cycle, um, probably even more than we do with Oedipus, because Oedipus, sometimes people will just read Oedipus Rex and, you know, they kind of will. Um, but I think the, the first, the first story is, very tra- very much a tragedy right there's not there's no redemption there um and at, but maybe the second one i don't i don't know it's but it's hard to separate this out as it not as not being part of a cycle um but right there- and it, yeah you're right that this it does work more as a cycle than maybe any other yeah because there's no the story's not resolved at the end of the first like right. and no one could read Agamemnon and feel like, oh, well, that story resolved. It's like that story's resolved. It's resolved as a tragedy, but that's fine. It's resolved. It's a re- there's a resolution to the story. Yeah. You lead that story going, oh, this is there's something coming. Like this, that was a setup for something dun, dun, else. Dun, dun. Right? Yeah, exactly. To be continued. Um, that's right. <laughs> uh, there's no feeling of resolution, so I think it's hard to, to separate them out. And if you don't separate them out, it's it's hard to really peg this as a tragedy, the way we discuss it typically. Um, maybe, maybe 
two thirds tragedy, one third comedy. Um, yeah. 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 And I, it all, I was I mean, quite surprised in that last part of the last play blessings right to where they they even say that there's a line there that they they rival each other athena and the furies rival each other in giving out blessings that's huge yeah i mean it's 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 tragic in the sense that at the end i think there is resolution there is justice but there's also the fact that you know orestes have lost orestes and electra have lost both their mother and father um, right. because of this. And so in that sense, there's there's no undoing that. There's no resolution to that. No. Um, you know, but that that's like, um, you know, nine out of 10 Disney movies. Um, mm. So uh, that doesn't, by definition, make it a tragedy. Um, it makes it tragic in a sense, but that's every, as I said, every comedy has its fall. Yeah. And then, you know, but it also has to have the resolution. And so I think that as a cycle, this fits more as a comedy hmm. than it does a tragedy. Not to the last scene of the last play. Right. right. We got to get all the way to the very end, waiting for it. Yeah. Longing yeah. for it. when we are told four times to go out with joy. Yeah. And carry on the dancing is the last line in my <laughs> Cry, mm. cry, and triumph. Carry on the dancing, on and on. Um, that's repeated twice in the the last the last words of the women of the city. So, um, it's hard to get to the end of that and go, mm, "What a tragedy!" You know, I mean, there's celebration throughout the city, right? Um, so, I I can't believe I'm saying this, but I think the cover of your book might be wrong, Andrew. Oh, wow. Should wow. I get a Sharpie? Bold words. Well, we do... Just tape over it. <laughs> we do know there's precedent for mis mislabeled books because if you try and buy the Narnian series right now, they're not numbered correctly any longer. So uh, but, uh, that's a, ta a fight for another day. That is. It's going to uh, take more than a day. <laughs> Okay, we there's more we can talk about. There's, there's that that's the reason these are great books because you can keep going back to the well. Um, but it has been an hour, so yeah, if we had some I, final statements, I'd like to make them. Let's make them now. I have a final statement. All right, Brian, thank you, thank you for coming on oh, for sharing and engaging in this story with us. Yeah, this was I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I'm always happy to come back to this one. This is an, an old friend. Well, you're an old friend too, so we'll have to have you back because we we've missed you. So absolutely, yeah. Uh, and so and so the it. people, the people have cried out, Brian. People have cried Rocket out. Phillips, right, sure Brian they have. Phillips. Um, yeah. But I mean, what else were they saying? What listen, was the end of that sentence, Andrew? No. <laughs> listen, our our new MC has more hair, but he's also kind of a whippersnapper. So you know, the people the people miss you. Uh, yeah, maybe not the glare of the stage lights. Out <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> um, no, that was always a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Well, before we part, a couple couple of uh, housekeeping items. First, um, for those of you who are going to be joining us on the next book, Andrea and I will both be back, and we are going to uh, go with. Um, oh, now I'm going to blank out the oh. uh, on the human condition. 
uh, by St. Basil. It's a, it's a little shorter work. Probably We'll probably just do two or three episodes on that one. And we'll try and post that information in the emails and all those kind of things this week. Um, but it's on the human condition by St. Basil, um, one of the early church fathers. So it's going to jump ahead a few, a few centuries and um, touch, touch down uh, in the early church era. Um, also, it was Brian's uh, recommendation. I just want to was, skip yeah. on credit. That's right. That's right. We were having such a hard time choosing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll I also, think, ch- I think that's a good one to follow up after, after this trilogy. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Well, good, good. Thank and you. we'll try and get out the word on the next couple of books. So people can start buying ahead for at least the next couple of months. Um, Andrea, uh, what is coming up for Cersei in the fall? Mm. What we got on the, on the slate in the next few months. Yeah. So for September, we're launching our atrium courses. So it's not too late to join us. Um, Heidi is, uh, White is leading a class on Shakespeare, Jonathan Council on the great ideas and Tanya Roselle on norms and nobility. Um, and then in October, or I think it's the 20th and 21st is our regional conference in Georgia. Um, so, uh, Lift Up Your Hearts is the theme of that conference. I highly encourage you to come. After that, the next big event is a new one that we've never done, and it's called the Forma Symposium. It will be the last Friday and Saturday of January. It will be held at Belmont Abbey in North Carolina on their campus. And it's an opportunity. We're going to be getting the word out. If it didn't start last week while I was on vacation, it's coming any moment now uh, about um, submitting your papers for peer review by two peers before you present them at that symposium. So, uh, yeah. and then those that are presented at the symposium itself are then considered for publication in our form of magazine. Yeah, this is exciting new new stuff. This yeah. sort of, uh, academic forum um, focused on classical education. So, pretty exciting. Right. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. For those of you who pay attention to the show notes, uh, you may have noticed. So a little link in there next to Mr. Phillips, Dr. Phillips name here. Um, there's a new education of Bruin in the Carolinas uh, and uh, Brian is on the board there. So I wanted to give him a chance before we part ways for, for the time being to talk a little bit about New Aberdeen College, what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so New Aberdeen is um, a, a work that we are building towards now. Uh, we're still in the the planning stages and getting all of our foundational documents. And um, we'll have some events leading up to uh, the start of actual on-site residential classes. Um, but um, Dr. Ryan Smith, who was a, uh, who was actually the, the head, uh, I believe the head of the music conservatory at New St. Andrews College in Idaho, has moved back to the South. He's from South Carolina. So he's back in North Carolina now. Uh, in Concord and is heading up this project with um, the support of uh, a pretty broad um, um, set of board members. Um, and so it's a a Christian classical college, um, mainly in the reformed tradition, but a kind of broadly reformed tradition. Um, and so we're very excited about that. If you want to find out more about it, uh, it's uh, com. Uh, is the website, and we've got a lot of a uh, lot of information there. Still, a lot more to come, of course, in the early stages. And as of now, the plan is to start offering residential classes um, for undergrad in the fall of 2025. Um, but if you stay tuned, you'll see we're going to be doing some 
probably some one day conferences, some uh, online seminars, some teacher training opportunities uh, and opportunities for high school students uh, to jump in on uh, webinar type gatherings, as well as some in-person things. So, yeah, we're very excited about that. And our church is helping to, to sponsor that to get us started. So, yeah, thank you for giving me a chance to, to throw that out there. Appreciate that. Yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting to see more of these kind of smaller regional colleges uh, developing out there in the face of what's going on in, in academia more broadly. So so it's always always rooting for the new ones. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope you all of you will check that out. I hope you all check out the events coming up for Cersei in the fall. Um, we'll be back uh, next week, like we said, with uh, another another book here on Overdue Classics with On the Human Condition. I hope you'll join us for that. Um, and uh, thanks for joining us this week to wrap up Orestes and be sure to check out we have lots of fun interviews going on over on quiddity um karen and renee have new episodes um on 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 dwell um josh has one on proverbial called not my first rodeo which was fun to listen to the other day Mm -hmm. so uh, be sure to check out the other shows and and drop us a line at podcast at searchinstitute.org if you have something you want to say or ask a question um and enjoy the rest of your week Mm